Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415, or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Yeah, All right, right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me talking to someone for the purposes of your entertainment. This is you sitting slack-jawed on the subway. My guest today is Noah Hawley. He's the author of four novels, the most recent of which is called The Good Father. It is getting rave reviews. It's out there. It's available now from Doubleday. Noah is also an accomplished film and television writer. He wrote and produced the TV show Bones. He created a program called The Unusuals and another called My Generation. And he also wrote uh, the screenplay for a feature film called Lies and Alibis. So uh, he's a very accomplished guy who's had a very interesting career and a lot of successes. And I'm going to talk with him about all of that in just a moment. Uh, what else? Uh, I thought I would first talk a little bit about social awkwardness, uh, the kind of awkwardness that evolves out of a social interaction and usually ends with me sitting there trying to replay a sequence of events in my mind. And I do this to myself sometimes. 
Uh, I do it in life generally, frequently. And I have this thing where I'm constantly second guessing and replaying scenes in my mind, trying to figure out what just happened. Uh, Worried that I've somehow offended people or acted with an unseemly lack of grace, that I've made some sort of social faux pas, uh, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing at precisely the wrong time. And it can be the smallest thing. And usually it is the smallest thing. And that, you know, that's what gets me confused. It is what plagues me. It can be an exchange with a cashier or a waiter or a waitress. Uh, I will worry about it after the fact. Uh, did they understand that I was joking? Did they realize that I couldn't understand what they were saying because of all the background noise? Uh, was it somehow rude of me to refuse that double coupon offer with a club card membership? You know, or else it could be, uh, for example, an exchange with a neighbor on the elevator, which is a common occurrence for me because I live in a building with an elevator. And it's the kind of, uh, the kind of interaction that happens daily and tends to be unusually awkward because, I'm the kind of person who will say hello on an elevator if it's just me and one other person. That's just how I am. That's my rule. And I think I might have even mentioned this before. Uh, That's how I perceive the situation. If there are multiple people on the elevator, uh, you know, three, four, five people, silence is fine. You can just stand there and stare at the door or whatever it is that you do. But otherwise, if there's just one other person, uh, I'm going to say hello. And I'm going to try to engage in polite conversation. Uh, even if it's just like, uh, you know, hey, how are you today? You know, like it doesn't have to be complicated. And to me, that's just basic etiquette. Like I'm not going to stand there with one other person in a closed space and pretend that they're not there. Uh, if it's just the two of you, you have to talk and you have to try your best to execute the conversation effectively within a compressed time frame, which is the key point. And, and it's the hardest, you know, and the hardest part of the whole situation uh, is the dismount. It's the conversational disengagement because uh, obviously the elevator is going to stop. It's going to stop soon. The doors are going to open. You're going to get off. The other person's going to stay on. The doors are on a timer. So you've got to wrap things up quickly and you have to try to be elegant about it, which can be difficult. So uh, last night, just to illustrate my point, uh, I was riding up the elevator with my neighbor or at least I thought it was my neighbor. Uh, And in actuality, I had never seen this woman before. But now, here she was on the elevator with me, and it was just the two of us. And so, uh, of course, I asked her how she was doing and how her day had gone, and she said, fine. And she asked me how my day had gone, and then I said, fine. And then the elevator reached uh, our floor. We actually shared the same floor. And as we were exiting, I said, do you live here? And, uh... This woman looks at me with what I perceive to be a bit of pain in her eyes. Like there was pain in her facial expression. Uh, Like a brief flash of it. Like a micro expression. And she said, uh, yes. You know, like, yes, I do live here. And uh, and so then we say goodbye and we walk to our respective apartments. And now immediately, in my mind, uh, I'm second-guessing myself. And I'm thinking, have I offended this woman? Like, have we actually met before? And uh, did it somehow slip my mind? Uh, Because obviously she lives right down the hall. uh, And so maybe we've said hello before at some point. Like maybe I've seen her uh, hundreds of times. But due to my obscene levels of self-involvement, her face uh, has failed to register. And uh, if if that's the case, then that's a sad commentary on my basic humanity. Not to mention kind of rude. 
But at the same time, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe she just moved in last week. Maybe that was, in fact, our first meeting. And maybe, in actuality, that was not pain in her eyes. Maybe she was afraid that she was being rude because she didn't remember me. And so on and so forth. So that's my brain. Uh, it's neurotic thinking. I'm aware of it. I think it's relatively common. And, uh, you know, to, to sort of compound the whole issue, just moments ago, uh, before I sat down here at the microphone, I was out taking a walk uh, with my dog, Walter, and uh, I was trying to think about what I was going to talk about. And I started thinking about this particular trend of uh, constantly reviewing events and trying to make sure I haven't offended anyone. And, uh, and then I got back to my building and I walked in, you know, into the lobby and I walked to the elevator and I rode up in the elevator with a delivery guy. It was a food delivery guy. Uh, he was standing there and at first I didn't say anything. I entered the elevator and I sort of had it in my head that I wasn't going to say a word. I was going to uh, buck the trend, go against the grain. Uh, obviously I'm, you know, usually I'm the first person to say something, but in this case, the delivery guy looks at me and he says, hello. And of course I say hello back. And he asks me to push the number four button because I was standing near the, the buttons. And so I push the number four button and then I tell him, uh, that the food smells good. And then he tells me that I should order some. And I say, maybe I will, even though I probably won't. And, uh, then he asks me, uh, how I'm doing tonight. And then I tell him that I'm doing fine. And then the elevator stops and uh, I go to get off the elevator. And as I'm exiting the elevator, he asks me if I live here and I tell him that I do. And there is not a micro expression of pain in my eyes. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. journey. I was living in San Francisco for 11 years, and while I was up there writing novels, I wrote a screenplay, uh, and then I started coming down to L.A. Um, and doing some feature meetings, and I had a couple of deals and a movie made, and, and then... Uh, well, how did that happen? It, like that. It just it just happened. For real? No. no. Well, I mean, uh, you know, my motto is, what else can I get away with? So... Um, I was up in San Francisco. I was part of this writer's collective called the Writer's Grotto. It was 21 writers and filmmakers. We were in an old converted dog and cat hospital. And it was Poe Bronson and, and uh, uh, Ethan Waters. Ethan Kanan was one of the founding members. Um, 
Uh, ZZ Pack was there for a while, and Vendela Vida, who's Dave Eggers' uh, wife. And, uh, uh, you know, my friend Poe started doing some Hollywood stuff uh, and writing some movies and TV stuff. And I was like, oh, that seems cool. So I wrote this movie uh, called The Alibi, and, and uh, I happened to be represented uh, for my book stuff by ICM at the time. So I ended up with a film agent at ICM, and she read the script, and she's like, great, I'm going to send this out, and people are going to want to meet you, so you should come down. And I was like, okay, I got on a plane, and she's like, well, people are going to want to know what you want to do next, so if you have any other ideas. So on the plane, I was like, oh, okay, what else should I do? And I came up uh, with just like a quick pitch and sort of took it around, and then at the end of the first round of meetings, I had sold the pitch. Uh, and uh, okay, so how because I've gone through those meetings before. Yeah, how did you sell a pitch? What do you think was your? Uh, well, it's, I didn't even sell the pitch. I sold. I sold the pitch. I met with these. Um, it was this production company uh, called Wind Dancer. They were it, they were the uh, the home improvement producers who had gotten rich off that show and had had started their own um, uh, production company that that had. I mean, I guess they had their own money or whatever. So. Uh, I pitched, it was run by, by, um, a couple of, uh, women and the guys, the three guys were out of the town. So I pitched them and they said, we really like this idea. You, we need you to come back and pitch to the speakerphone. So I sold the pitch to the speakerphone, basically. Uh, what was the pitch? Uh, well, I sold a pitch, uh, for a movie called Yes Man, which was about, about a guy who, who, uh, says yes to everything. He changes his life by saying yes to everything, uh, which is not... The version they ended up making based on a book called Yes Man that was a sort of very similar idea. Um, but that was the pitch. It was a high concept. You know, a guy wakes up one morning and decides his life is going in the wrong direction and he's just going to say yes to everything. So I ended up writing that. And that just you just them. came up with that on a plane? Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I had a, a friend as a magazine writer who had, um, had talked a lot about... He'd done a nonfiction article about the way people make decisions, and I, I you know, there was some some inspiration for it. Um, but uh, so I sold that pitch, and then uh, my first novel, uh, Conspiracy of Tall Men, had been optioned by Paramount with Patrick Stewart producing, and they'd hired someone to write a draft of that script. Um, and uh, ultimately, then I'd sold uh, a pitch, so suddenly I was a screenwriter, and they and Paramount didn't like their the draft they'd gotten in. So they said, well, you're a screenwriter now. Do you want to give it a try? And I said, good. Uh, and then Summit uh, bought that original script that I'd written. So so within like a six-month period, I'd sold three. I Suddenly I was a screenwriter. Good God. I know. That's the way it's supposed to happen. I know. It never got – that was the, the peak. <laughs> uh, you came out of the gates fast. Well, and then, you know, I, I – uh, so I did that and then uh, – um, you know, I was basically told by the ICM, the feature folks, they were like, well, people in the TV department, you know, they'd love to be able to send you out for some TV meetings. And, and as I said, my motto is, what else can I get away with? So I was like, all right, I'll go out. And I went to uh, – because uh, they have this thing in television where um, being on a TV staff, it's – you can have a long career in television where your primary skill is learning to write in somebody else's voice. And so it's actually a disadvantage, I think to climb the ladder year by year, rank by rank, um, because the studios start to see you as someone who doesn't have a lot of original ideas. You're just someone who can execute other somebody else's vision. So they're always looking to feature guys. They're always looking to outside voices to come in because they think that's where the original ideas are. 
So I was I went in um, and I had a meeting with Jersey um, back when they were still doing TV. John Langraff was running Jersey. He now runs FX. Uh, and I had a meeting over at Valhalla, which is Gail Ann Hurd's company. Uh, and they were like literally these general meetings where you go in and they say, well, do you watch TV? And what kind of shows do you like? And and I got a call from my agent later. And he's like, well, they're both going to make you these blind script offers. And I was like, for what? Like I didn't – it's not like I pitched a show. I guess one of them said maybe here's a book you could look at or whatever. Uh, but this is more the golden age of television pre-strike. Uh, where they were a little more. Um, this is making me feel better because I'm yeah. like, this is insane. Yeah, this was, this was sort of the more the golden age of television. Um, are you good in a room? Like, do you feel? I like am. You, yeah, you are. Uh, How so? What makes you good? Well, it's you know it's sales, um, and uh, you know I do this thing um, as I've been doing these readings for for the Good Father. Um, I get up, I go around the country, and I say, you know, I'm going to tell you the secret to success in Hollywood, which is it's all about the segue, right? The segue is a transition from small talk to the pitch. And you have to nail the segue because if it's awkward at all, they start to it's – it's a really interesting dynamic of, this, of sales and the fact that TV and film, which are these totally visual mediums, still rely on the oral storytelling tradition – um, which is I walk into a room and tell you a story. And from that, you decide whether you want to be in business with me. Uh, you have no idea if I can write or not, really. Like, I can pitch you the best story and not be able to execute it. Um, but so, I don't know. I mean, what what makes a, a person good in a room with other people? It's like um, you try to be funny. You try to engage them. You know, I think it's very helpful as a writer to learn – what engages people about a story, to have to distill a story down to 10 or 15 minutes uh, and have to grab people at the very beginning, you know, and you learn that it's all about character. Like even if you're pitching Die Hard, it's, I mean, no one cares if it's not a character that you care about. Um, and uh, so, I don't, you know, it just... So wait, no, just to, just to make sure I'm clear, when you went into these meetings, these television meetings, uh, right. you had already had success with your feature. Yeah. Okay, so that helps. Yeah. But well, as you you know, as we talked about before, it's like, you know, the key to being successful is to already be successful, you know, it's and and you know, when you're coming into it um from another field, you, you know, my advantage when I first started with the Hollywood stuff was that I came down it was a lark. You know, I'd written the screenplay. I was up in San Francisco, I, you know, I had my community. We played handball on the roof every day. We had great lunches. Everybody bought, brought their dogs. I, was, I could have been lived there for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> so I came down, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do this, and it's kind of a lark, and I'll, I'll tell these people some stories, and we'll see what happens. And then as it gained traction and momentum, um, I was very aware from that, those very first meetings that, um, that the minute that you need them, you're done. Right, so I that's was, my problem. Yeah, well, so I was a novelist and a and a fiction writer. Right. Um. So and I was happy that way. So I was like, well, if this works out, great. If not, fine. Uh, and then with the TV stuff. So, how, like, but how are you supporting yourself up in San Francisco? Um. You know, I mean, not terribly well. Handball. Uh. Just- yeah. Handball. <laughs> definitely. Um. Uh. No, I mean, you know, as a novelist, I wasn't making a, a ton of money, but I'd managed to sort of like. You know, put it together. Certainly, financially, the screenwriting stuff kind of 
you know, saved my life and, and brought me into a more adult uh, style of living. Right. Um, but, um, you know, then going into the TV stuff, um, so, you know, I, I had those first two blind, what they call blind pilot deals. Uh, one was with um, CBS and then the other ended up being with FX. And I, I wrote three or four pilots um, over the next couple of years. And then I thought, well, if one of these ever gets picked up, I should know how to produce a show. Um, so, you know, I came down from San Francisco and, and uh, um, subletted a place and, and took some meetings for staffing season um, and ended up on, on a show called Bones. Uh, and I was there for two and a half years. And then I had my own show um, at ABC. And then this all started when you were like, so Austin. So um, so then that show was called The Unusuals, and we shot it in New York, and I convinced Sony to let us write it in New York, where I'm from. I grew up in New York City. Uh, so for for the next, like, 16 months, we I was living with my family in New York City, and it was great, and we were in Brooklyn. And then when that show ended, uh, we had bought a little place in Austin, and, and uh, we kind of retreated there to figure out what to do next and ended up staying uh, and then the next show that I did, which was called My Generation, we shot in Austin. So, um, you know, and now my daughter goes to preschool there, and we're kind of cemented there. Um, and I continue to develop the TV stuff and, and do some feature work, but I don't feel that I, I – I'm, I think I lived in Los Angeles for a total of two and a half years. Wow. You know, and, uh, you know, what else can I get away with? It's like, well, can I do this by not living here? That sounds better to me, you know, <laughs> right, so right. – Unbelievable. Yeah. So did you like it? Did you, cause you hear stories, people are like, this is like soul sucking, soul crushing work, or, you know, you're, you're writing books too. Do the books exercise a different part of you that you feel like compensates for that? Or is it all good? I mean, well, again, it's, it's, you know, I, I continue to try to push all of these mediums forward so that I'm not rely on, on any one of them, you know, like, um, and this book has actually, you know, because I published three books kind of very quietly, I feel. And then this novel has been a much more, you know, um, rewarding and substantive publishing experience and, and just a higher profile experience. And, and uh, you know why? Uh, yeah, well, do I know why the book, why the publishers believe the book is more commercial? I think I do. I mean, it's a, it's a story of a man a doctor whose son is is accused of shooting a presidential candidate. It has a certain commercial thriller quality to it, although it doesn't play out as a Hollywood thriller. But it's also um, a story about fatherhood and parenthood and, and, you know, the fears we all have for who our kids are going to grow up and be and what kind of parent we're going to be. And so I think, though, it has a kind of page-turner quality to it. It has this totally universal, emotionally you know, immersive and recognizable component to it, um, that, that pulls people in. So, um, you know, I feel like in the past I've, you know, I've done stuff that's, that's looking back is maybe less commercial because it doesn't have a, um, a plot driven element to it, or it, it might, but it doesn't have that emotional, um, uh, through line that really pulls you through. So, um, but, you know, I mean, I was a, at best a midlist fiction author. I mean, it's great because you're a novelist in Hollywood and everyone goes, oh, you're a real writer. And, you know, but I, I hadn't really had much success with it other than the fact that it's always a success when you 
when you're able to publish another book. So right, sure. You can't you can't sh- uh, hold your nose at that. Uh, but then with this one, you know, um, which you know we've now sold to like eight countries, and and uh, uh, you know the publisher, the Doubleday, is is doing a great job of marketing the book, and and uh, you know then you start to think, well, actually maybe this could actually be a real career for me. Um, but I love the TV work as well. I love, um, I mean, you know, show running is, is such a crazy job. It's like 18 different jobs in one, you know, and you're basically the CEO of like a $60 million corporation and you have 200 employees and like, you know, you're running the writer's room, you're, you know, you've got final cut on every episode, you're prepping the directors, you're managing the budgets, you're dealing with network and studio politics. It's like you, it, you are the hub of every decision that gets made. Um, and which show did you run? Uh, the one I, that you that you created? Yeah, or? I created and ran two shows. One was called The Unusuals, which right. was on ABC, and it had Jeremy Renner in it and Amber Tamblin and Adam Goldberg. And that was in New York, sort of... I mean, the unusuals refer to the cases that, that this detective solved, which are kind of the otter crime. So it was a, a kind of comic um, uh, detective show. And then the second was called My Generation, and, and that was also for ABC. And it, and it was a documentary-style series uh, drama where the premise was that a documentary film crew had made a film about the high school class of 2000, and then 10 years later we went back to see what they'd made of their lives. So... Uh, and that was such a rewarding creative experience because it was so much like being a novelist, you know. I mean, there were I didn't have to solve a case or save a life or, you know, <laughs> it was just totally character-driven. And because the medium um, was so – I mean, it, you, you had the mockumentaries, you know, The Office and all that. But, but the dramatic documentary style like the 7-Up series no one had ever done before so we were just able to just invent the medium which was great so you watched a lot of tv prior to your career you were immersed in this stuff not really i mean uh no i wouldn't say i watched a ton of television beforehand but it was just like the the the, the ether it was like the or the, the, the everyone who grew up in our generation watched a lot of tv oh yeah so i think at some point i think you have to pass a certain mark where like how much more do you really need to watch? I mean, how much different are the shows? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Or yeah, is that wrong? And, no. And, 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 you know, I mean, The Sopranos had already been on the air for, for five years or so when I started doing TV stuff. So this idea that there was this HBO, this sort of pay cable um, model that was reinventing television as, you know, almost a novelistic uh, medium it's really uh, good now. Yeah. You know, a lot of stuff is, like, extremely high quality on cable. Yeah, and that's what, you know, I mean, and that's what draws people to it, is that the movie business is all John Carter of Mars, and, and the TV business is like, well, come come over here and do something interesting. Well, and it's also like you've got a 72-inch flat screen in your living room. Yeah, right. With like, surround sound and high definition. Yeah. It's a rewarding viewing experience at home. It's true. You know, instead of sitting in a, a theater, which... It sort of breaks my heart because I love a theater. Yeah. I, I would hate to see theaters go away because I love that experience, even though I haven't been to a theater in right. eight, 18 months since my daughter was born. Yeah. You know? Well, you've got another six months or so, and then you can start to take her to those kids. Yeah. Things. I'll get to see, like, you know, they won't wear Finding the, Nemo. They won't wear the 3D glasses until they're at least four. I'll tell you that right oh, now. Oh, really? Okay. That's good to know. Um, well, that's interesting. So, like, you, you seem well-adjusted about it. Like a lot of writers, I feel like there's like a bitterness or a um, 
especially in Hollywood. Yeah. I talk to people who write for television. It's like, it's just an awful experience. I was just reading about, uh, I want to say Mark Lehner. Oh yeah. 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 He got out of like a a 10 year in the, you know, it's like 10 years in the wilderness of Hollywood essentially. And he emerged and then returned to literature and it's like, you know, the, yeah. And I was a huge fan of his, but there's no reason he had to drop out of literature. You know, that was his own, like if Hollywood is not that immersive that you can't go write a book, You, you know, I mean, yeah, he's making a lot of money to be a script doctor and to do all that stuff. But does that really mean you got to put everything you love about writing aside? Um, seems, or, it seems a little melodramatic. A little bit. I mean, but maybe and maybe that's just the way that it was portrayed. I, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said about it. You know, was that what he is that how he put it or is that how it was kind of couched in the article? I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, look, it's tough. And then you start a family and you have kids and the amount of time you have to do your work drops tremendously. And and uh, um and you just have to become really economical, and and it it is hard. I mean, I'm in a phase now where I'm trying to, I'm about a hundred pages into a new book, and and you know, writing a novel is such a, it's not a country you visit. You know, you got to move in, and um, at the same time, you know, I finished a development deal, uh, and it's a new development season, and now I'm out. You know, I got to go out and put the salesman hat back on and go make some deals, and you can't really do both at the same time. Um, so you know, I'm just trying to get it, squeeze as many days of novel writing in before I really have to hang up that hat for a while. And, and what does development deal season mean? You means you go around to the various studios and try to sell a show? Essentially? Yeah. I mean, network television, which is ABC, NBC, Fox, and CBS, they, they have this insane business model. that's like 50 years old that they just refuse to get rid of, which is between July and September, um, although it's become like July and, and November, um, each of those networks will buy about 160 television pitches, 80 dramas and 80 comedies. Um, and then the writers will go off, and by Christmas they'll have turned in a first or a second draft. And then between Christmas and mid-January, each network will have to read 160 scripts and decide which of those they're going to turn into 20 pilots. And we, and then they race off and shoot those pilots. And then by May 15th, they have to choose which of those 20 pilots they're going to turn into six to eight television series. And so, like, a lot of them just get yeah, and just so turned into dust. What, what happens is it's just this, they waste, I mean, each network wastes over $100 million a, a year um, by, by, invest, by paying writers to write the scripts, that they never make by shooting pilots that they never air. Uh, and then, you know, like my, both of my shows only lasted a single season and, and, uh, you know, my generation, we got canceled after the second episode. So what happens to you when that happens? When it, well, were you devastated? Well, here was the crazy thing. Like the unusuals was what they call a mid season show, which means, they bought it. They're like, well, we'll put it on the air in March or April, and we won't really put any money into it. And we'll and if it survives, it survives. And if not, fine. Uh, my generation, for whatever reason, was their flagship show of the fall season. I mean, you you live in LA, you probably saw the billboards everywhere. And and they, you know, they shot a movie trailer, a trailer that they put in movie theaters for the month of July. I mean, they spent tens of millions of dollars publicizing the show we had a big rolling stone party on the sunset tower and and uh you know they sent me around the country with sort of screening the show to tastemakers and all this sort of stuff um and then you know we aired the first night 
and the ratings weren't good. And uh, how does that happen? See, this is what's crazy to me. It's like you're marketing something with that kind of muscle. Yeah. And you've got billboards and movie trailers and fancy parties and all this stuff. Like, can you make sense of it, or is it just a mystery? Uh, well, it happens for a couple of reasons. One, um, the ABC marketing department is just not very good at their jobs. Uh, it was, it's a complicated idea. It's a, it's a fake documentary that takes place in two time periods. You know, so it's a hard, you know, the same year they premiered uh, No Ordinary Family, which was like a family that gets superpowers. It's like, okay, well, that's really easy to market that. But my show, arguably not a network television show, um, to begin with, and just hard to sort of put into a poster or a TV, a 30-second TV spot to explain to people what it really is, even if you're great at it. And if you're not great at it, and, and like ABC, you you had this sort of glossy veneer to everything, uh, and I was trying to make a show that, that you would believe it was real, like a reality show, and the things just clash, you know? Um, Did you have any crazy, like, fights in boardrooms, like, that you hear about in Hollywood, where, like, the... There's tension between marketing and the creative, and yeah, I mean it was it was difficult because the you know Steve McPherson who ran ABC at the time, for whatever reason he read the script for the show and he's like this is a legacy show for me this is like a revolutionary you know because it was the first real show of the Facebook generation I mean it was it was all about the connectedness of people and and um, you know of trying to be. And the problem with the shows about people in their 20s like Friends is that they're always about people being in their 20s, which isn't inherently interesting. It's like you, you're not good at your job yet. You don't have a real relationship yet. And, and um, you know, so I just wanted to write about characters who were that age and doing all kinds of different things. And, and uh, so he loved the show. And he's like, all right, this is our show. I want, I'm going to launch this show. Uh, and then he quit about a month before the show premiered. Um <sighs> And because of his enthusiasm, he said, all right, I'm going to take this very kind of hard-to-market, unconventional idea, and I'm going to put them on a Thursday night at 8 o'clock, you know, against Big Bang Theory and Bones and, like, you know, all these, like, proven shows. Uh, they won't have a lead-in. They'll have to launch the night. Um, and Thursday is notoriously the most expensive advertising real estate because you're launching all your weekend movies and all that sort of stuff. So what happens is the minute that you air and your ratings aren't good, all the advertisers start screaming. They want their money back. So you just don't have any room um, to prove yourself. Uh, And also you now have a new network president who has no allegiance to the show and no – there's no incentive for him to save the last guy's brilliant idea. You know what as, I mean? as soon as you lose your champion, it's tough. So what happened is we, you know, we I had, you know, we had a premiere party at the Chateau Marmont. You know, the night before, the night we aired, and everyone watched the premiere, and and uh, and we woke up the next morning, and the ratings weren't good. Ugh. Uh, and everyone said at the network was like, you know, we're in this for the long haul. We're, you know, don't worry about it. You're going to get at least four or five to before we really make up our minds. Uh, and then we aired one more time, uh, and, and we were canceled the next day. How did you get that news? Did uh, they just call you up and say sorry? Yeah, it's a phone call. Um, and so it was literally like seven days. Seven days from being on top of the world to, you know, to being the first canceled show. Well, Lone Star was the first canceled show, and then we were, you know, we both got two episodes. Oh. Um, and so... But emotionally, like you seem so well adjusted. Were you pretty zen about it? Were you like, what? No, it was really tough. It was a really tough one because, um, well, first, 
you know, I know now that certainly on network television, I will never get to do a show that 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 is that um, creatively satisfying, you know, and so inventive on a structural level as well as, you know, we were in we were so we were shooting at Austin, so I had the whole like my wife is really happy component too. Like this, like <laughs> I don't know how I managed to stick this landing. Dude, but you, were a, like, you were a magician. Yeah, I'm like a magician. So that whole, that went out the window. Yeah. Um, and then you know we were we had our we were off off of people's radar and we were you know I mean just for an example of the kind of stuff that we were able to do we had one character on the show who um, you know who was the jock in high school and he graduated and joined the army after nine eleven and and we had built a little Afghanistan base in 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 Austin and and uh, uh, we populated it with all these real uh, veterans. Um, and because I it was thought, a docu- I thought you were going to say Afghani, so I <laughs> no, uh, um, we flew him over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, because they were real soldiers, we I was just like, well, let's just have them tell their real stories. So we would just sit them down and have them tell their stories, and we would, and we just sort of cut it into the show. And you know, it's the kind of stuff that you could never get away with on, you know, on network television. And we didn't get away with it, but, but so creatively satisfying. I want to say it sounds like something, you know, but it sounds interesting. Right. You know, which a lot of network television when it's just verbalized doesn't. You well, know? The, you know, it's, it, it, it isn't, I mean, like all these industries, I mean, publishing is the same. I mean, it's, it's a fear-based economy, you know, and, and they take these risks and then they're terrified. They're like, Oh crap, what did I do? I took this risk. And, and then they just, they start hammering you. And the closer you get to your premiere date, the more they're hammering you to try to, put the show into the box that they recognize, you know, and you're like, well, wait, you didn't buy that show. You bought this other show. And they're like, and they don't, they don't acknowledge it. You know, they're just like, well, we're just trying to make it, you know, well, nobody ever, it's like the old saying, nobody ever got fired for what they said no to. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's their ass now that the thing's about to go on the air. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm, yeah, I was very devastated after that one. I mean, that, that was a big loss for me. And, and, uh, um, but I'm also pragmatic. It's like you know what you're getting into, and and where you earn the money is not in the creative stuff that's fun. It's in the network and studio politics. It's in the number of drafts they make you do. It's in, it's in the years they take off your life, and you know. But but you knew that getting into it, you know. Like I can't I can't cry about that stuff. Like that's what makes the job hard, you know. Because if it was just like go off and be creative and 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 run the show and and you know, I mean, a new, a new you start filming a new episode every eight days. It's impossible, but it's a challenge, and challenges are fun. Now, try to do that with somebody standing behind you yelling in one ear that you're doing it wrong. Now it becomes, like, annoying and hard, but you get paid a lot of money to do something you love for a living. You can't really complain about it. Yeah, no, yeah. It's like complaining about art problems. I've, I've written about this and talked about this on this show. It's just... It, Everybody does it yeah. practically who's involved in the arts, yeah. and it's absurd when you think about it. Yeah, so you know, when I hire people to work on the shows, it's always like I just like, you know, people who go, All right, yeah, it's impossible, but we're going to do it anyway, and let's have a good time doing it. And because it's, you know, and there's so many shows out there that are run by kind of bitter people who. You know, because that tone is set at the top, you know, and if you work in a dysfunctional environment, it's dysfunctional because the people who are getting paid the most money are the unhappiest. And you're like, that's just stupid. No, it's like any organization, any organization, I think the entire culture of the place is always set at the top. Yeah. You know, because like I've imagined, I'm thinking back to work experiences and like, 
you know, if the person running the ship doesn't have their shit together, it's never good for everybody else. <laughs> it's not. And TV is so complicated and, and there's so many moving pieces and, and they're adjusting you all the time that if you don't have a strong sense of self and, and, a, and a kind of love of life, it's you're going to be miserable. You'll be rich and miserable, but you're going to be miserable. So right, right. I suppose that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So uh, have you ever struggled as a writer creatively? Oh, yeah. oh creatively? Yeah. I mean, like, like how old were you when you published your novel, you know, your first book? I'm trying to get the timeline. Oh, right. Uh, I was 27, I think. 28. Which is, which is young. Yeah. So 27, 28, you're published. And then at what age do you come down to LA and have that like, yes, man pitch? It's like 32, maybe 31 or 32. Okay. But, um, you know, I sold Conspiracy of Tall Men, um, and, uh, you know, I had one of those publishing experiences where um, they go, oh, it's a great, you know, first novel and we're going to really get behind it. And then, you know, a month before pub date, they say, oh, well, actually, we're not going to print as many as we told you and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, who was the publisher? Uh, Harmony. Okay. So they're a division of Crown, I guess. Uh, and then um, I had oh, done... What a perfectly ironic name. <laughs> I know, Harmony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had done a... Uh, um, a two book deal, and um, they they didn't want the second book that I'd written, and and you know, so I was like, well, I believe in this book, and I'm going to take it someplace else and sell it. So let me out of my two book deal, and then I couldn't find another place who was willing to publish it, and then and then it was you know, I mean, it was a while between books, and and I definitely felt like you know I was struggling creatively and financially, and and uh, um. You know, but I feel like I did what what only writers can do, which is I wrote my way out of that hole. You know, um, I wrote a screenplay. I went down to Hollywood. I turned it into a second career. I mean, that's that's what writers have that actors and directors and you know, uh, you know, even singers and whatever don't have is like you can always write that thing. Well, no one no one really needs to give you permission to do what you like to do, right? And those things that redefine your career or give you a jump start, it's like. You know, the people who write one thing and just just hawk it over and over and over again, you're like, time to move on, man. Just write that. No, nobody's buying. So write something else. Somebody will buy that. You know, just keep trying things. And by, you know, I mean, I never went. I didn't get an MFA. I, you know, I've got a college degree, but I. Where'd I, you go to school? I went to Sarah Lawrence. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, where, where there was like a competition to see who could be the least prepared for life. Because, you know, I was on financial aid. I went to Boulder, dude. Come yeah, on. I know, right? <laughs> You're like, I can play like froth. Yeah. That's about it. Exactly. But, uh, um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, you start writing and, and, um, and you learn by doing it. And you you write a novel and you put it in a drawer and you write another one and you put it in a drawer. And then the third one, maybe that one's good and it sells. And, you know, so... I mean, I'm just industrious. I just, you know, that's that's my only secret is I just get up every day and. What like? How do you work? Give me, give me like your regimen. Well, it's always changing. It feels because I work in different mediums and and because like you know I ha I mean I look back at the last six years and it's like a schizophrenic life, you know, because I've gone like I said from being the CEO of this giant corporation to being like sitting like. In Austin, um, I work in the attic. I can only stand up in the very center of the room, right? <laughs> so I'm like, 
I think I'm pretty successful. Like, what's going on here? Um, but, you know, and then I travel a lot. And, and so, you know, I basically will just, if you give me two hours, I'll get something done, you know. But I, I can never tell you where I'm going to be or what those, you know, circumstances are going to be. Um, is that is that like the increment the time increment that you can work in creatively? Like if you're working on a novel, give you two hours, like you'll get. A f- not really. It's hard. No, novels are hard that way. Um, but uh, but you know when you're running a, a TV show, you'll have the schedule where it's like literally your day is completely booked except you've got 90 minutes from four to five thirty, and you've got a script that needs to be rewritten, and you just have to sit down and do it. That is the time you have allotted to do that. And so you can't be precious about it. You just have to do it. And, and that's a good discipline to learn though. Yeah. I think that I've applied that, you know, with the novel writing as well, which is just like, well, just sit down and start writing. If you have a sense of what you need to be doing in the book and where you're going, I mean, you know, you may have a, a few bad paragraphs, but once you get into it, you'll get into it. But and then what about structurally? Like, you know, with, with screenwriting, it seems like it's a a more formal structure than novels. Uh, do you find yourself writing outlines for the fiction that you write? No, that kills it. Um, I, you know, I recently I I, can't, I wrote seventy pages of a book um, and then wrote a treatment because I was like, well, maybe we can sell this. You know, now that Doubleday is excited about the book, maybe I'll sell this on spec. And then something about writing that ten page, like what's going to happen next thing, I lost all interest in writing the book. You know, because yeah. because books don't work that way. Books. But what about screenplays? Do you outline those? Yeah, you yeah you you do you do it religiously. I mean, there's still some discovery on the page, but but in general, stuff that happens in movies and TV shows happens because you've decided early on that it's going to happen, um, and stuff that happens in novels happens because you write your way to it. You know, it's it's much more interior, and and you live with the character, and the character you put the character through a scene, and something happens in that scene that so naturally and organically makes the next thing happen. So they're opposite things. And I find that if I outline too much with a novel, I, I lose, I lose it, you know, uh, cause then I'm just, I'm trying to write to something. It, what happens more is that all that I end up with these landmarks and I go, all right, well, I think the character's going to go here at some point, like a, a, a place in physical space. Uh, maybe, or maybe a moment in time, or maybe I see like an event happening, you know, in their, in their lives or in the course of the story. And I'm like, and so I'm like, all right, well, I know I'm writing toward that. Um, and then maybe there'll be something else that I'll see a little late, later on or another character that I know I'll want to get in. And, and, uh, and, you know, so sometimes uh, as happens with all writers, I think you write something and you're like, well, what am I going to do with that? And then later on you go, Oh my God, I know exactly what to do with that. And it's, you know, it's, it's trusting your process and your subconscious to that you're going to pay off the stuff that you set up, even though you didn't know how you were going to pay it off early on. And that's what's fun about it. I mean, there's so many, you know, it's 100,000 words. It's, you know, 300. If, if you know exactly what's going to happen the whole time, that just seems so boring. Like, just read the outline. <laughs> you know, like, why would I want <laughs> right. to just take everything that I know is going to happen and, and, and then spend the next two years just like laboriously t- typing it out. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So. No, I get that. So when you, uh, started out working in fiction and then, you know, started to dabble in, you know, in screenwriting prior to your first trip down to Los Angeles, that, yeah. uh, did, were you reading books about screenwriting? Were you studying it like in a kind of an autodidactic way or, 
You know, what happened was uh, my friend Paul Bronson, who was at the time, this was in the late 90s, was this kind of the premier chronicler of the dot-com boom. He wrote for Wired and he published a bunch of books on it. And, and it, it was at that moment in like 98, 99, where all the networks were like, this is the big thing, right? You know, Hollywood was like, dot-com is everything in our culture. How do we turn that into programming, you know? So they came to him and he wrote a couple of TV uh, pilots that didn't get made and wrote a feature script that didn't get made and and uh, but he was in that world and and uh, to a certain point I I had this idea for a movie and I went to him and we kind of kicked it around a little bit and and then he said well just you know get some index cards uh, and just you know on each index card you write a scene and then just go through the index cards and write the movie you know and I'd kind of beaten out like um general three-act-ness to it um, with characters. And, you know, the movie is about a uh, a former con man who starts an alibi service for people who cheat on their spouses. Um, and, you know, he'll go and provide you with, like, receipts to the convention you went to that you didn't go to because you were with some girl in a hotel. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he ends up um, providing an alibi for a kid who accidentally um, kills a girl that he's off with. And so now our hero has to step in and make a phone call he later wishes he didn't make to get make the body go away and take care of the stuff. And then suddenly he gets pulled back into this sort of criminal world and ends up having to con his way out of it in the third act. And uh, and I thought they made a pretty good movie out of it. It's got Steve Coogan in it and, and uh, Rebecca Romaine and Selma Blair and all these, all these folks. Um, and so I just – I sort of had this sense of what – you know, who these people were, and I needed to have all these moving parts, as if the cops, and there's all this sort of stuff. Um, and then I just wrote the index cards, and then I just went through, and I was like, okay, that scene's done. Okay, that scene's done. How many done. cards did you have? I don't know. I mean, it's probably 30 cards or something, 45 cards. I don't I, I don't remember at this point, but... Um, Screenwriting's pretty quick once you have the, the deck, like once you've got the outline done, like the actual writing of the script is... Yeah, well, here's what's crazy. So I did, you know, I had these two shows on ABC, and then, and then ABC Studios said, all right, well, we want to pay you... You know, we want to we want to keep you on our roster, so we want to pay you to write two pilots for us. And so between, you know, I signed that deal in, like, uh, November of... Um, of 2010, and then um, for the next like 10 or 11 months, all I was trying to do was get them to buy an idea from me, right? Like I thought, oh, I'll set something up early and, you know, I'll get a jump on things, and they just didn't want to buy what I was selling them. And so, you know, I was in sales mode for like 11 months, and then they finally bought these, you know, two ideas from me. And then you go through the outlining process and, you know, that's just math, you know. I mean, it's it's not writing. I mean, you write these outlines, but it's not writing in a satisfying way. And then, you know, they say, all right, well, go to scripts. And, I, you know, at the end of five days, I have a script. So 11 months to spend five days writing, you know. And so when I ended that deal, I was like, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't ever want to spend the majority of the year selling and the minority of the year writing. So... You know, I'm I'm much more apt to you know write what they call spec scripts now, or or you know, I mean now I'm talking a lot uh, with cable uh, outlets about those projects where they they're less creatively controlling and and everything. So. I was gonna yeah, that was one of the questions that popped into my head earlier. Is like, you know, you have uh, it was it was when you were describing somebody yelling in your ear while yeah. you're while you're trying to make creative decisions. Yeah, are there? I'm I'm sure there are. 
um, you know, networks that are more friendly to the creative process than others. Is that right? And in cable, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, absolutely. I, you read about like Louis C.K. has that deal where right. like he has basically. The Louis deal that everybody wants. Yeah, yeah. everybody wants that because he's got like soup to nuts control of his show. Right. Nobody messes with him. Right. And he just gets to put it on the air. Yeah. But, you know, that's uh, a very rare circumstance. Yeah, nobody really gets that. Um, you know, I was just over in England for, for the book, The Good Father, available now. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, because it's out in the UK as well, and I was like, well, I'm, while I'm over here, I might as well do a bunch of British television, you know, meetings, BBC or, or B Sky B, and, and some producers, because wouldn't it be fun to do some shows in England where they make such great television, or to do like an international co-production or whatever? Um, and they're it's crazy over there because you go in and you say, oh, I'd like to make some TV, and they go, that's great. What do you want to do? And uh, and they don't have any formulas. Like, their TV, you look at a show like Sherlock, you know, where they're like, well, we tried it as a 60-minute, but it works better as a 90-minute. And let's, so let's just make three 90-minute shows, and that's a season, right? Or, you know, or you have the, like, MI5, which is, like, more of a traditional episodic TV show. Like, they'll do that, or they'll say, well, you know, that maybe that sounds like it's a two-hour movie, so let's just do a two-hour movie. Or maybe it's six episodes, or maybe, you know... They basically say, well, what do you want to do? And you tell them, and then you figure out together. What the best formula is to make yeah. it happen. And then here's the even crazier part, is that you'll you'll do, write a pilot for them, and then they'll say, great, thanks. Um, do you want to stay involved? And you'll go, not really. And they'll go, okay, well, we'll just continue to send you a check, and this producer will come in and hire writers to do the show and all this sort of stuff. So thanks very much. And you're like... Not really, right? Like you know, you're so used to once once you get that show picked up, you're just it's, you're the the hardest working man in show business. So, so England seems pretty attractive, um, but you know, networks like you know HBO and Showtime and and Stars. You know, the, the biggest problem I think is that they all have such a clear brand that um, you know, I mean. When you go into HBO, it's an HBO show, and they, so they have a strong brand identity that you, you're like, all right, well, that's – even though they're yelling in my ear less, they're less likely to put something in the air that doesn't feel exactly like their brand. Right, so, right. Um, what is their brand? Can you, can you distill that? Oh, the HBO brand? I can't, I can't really. It's more and, – and, you know, they can't really either, FX or AMC or, you know – I mean, AMC, I think they kind of have a mandate, which is like – they're the movie channel, so if it's a film genre, they like, you know, it's like the horror genre or, you know, the killing and, the, and or Mad Men or, you know, whatever. Um, and FX is, is more, um, you know, edgy and, 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 and dark, although, you know, um, they'll always take a risk. Um, it just doesn't mean you'll get on the, on the air, so. But, you know, it's... It, I, who knows what, what I'll end up doing next? You know, you you, um, you work on a lot of things in order to get one thing. You know, so and when you go into those meetings, like when you talked about that, like like extended period of sales where you yeah. have the five day writing period yeah. and eleven months of going out and kind of pitching. Yeah, you're in offices, sitting across from somebody talking it out. That's it. Or are you presenting to a group? No, it's you know, it's there's usually. Well, the most people have ever been in a room with me is like 11 people. Three of them I brought with me. You know, like you're in TV, 
one of your agents goes with you, and then you have this network and studio system where the studio puts up it's a deficit financing business. So the studio actually pays to make the show and they pay you. And then the network pays them a licensing fee uh, to air the show. Um, but the network is the ultimate buyer and the one who decides what goes on the air. But you have to go through all the studio notes and all this, you know, because they have an opinion as well. Um, and, you know, sometimes they take you in totally the wrong direction because they want something different than what the network wants. And you're like, well... But the network decides what goes in the air. Like if I make your show and they don't put it on the air, like isn't that just a waste of our time? Um, and so, you know, I've been in a room where there's like two agents and three studio executives and four network executives and and me. Um, but I know sitting in that room that there's only one person in that room who says yes or no, and that's the person I talk to. So everybody else you just ignore. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, there's. Do you feel like a lot, like most people, understand that dynamic? Is it, is it, or is it just totally uh, self-evident when you walk into the room, or is that something that you? It's not strategically think about. I mean, it's something that I learned over time. Um, you know, I remember um, someone once saying to me, you know, that the right philosophy when walking into those rooms as a writer is, I'm here to make you the money that you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you walk in and you go. Because that's what we're doing where it's, it's, you know, I mean, we're, it's, we're selling microwaves or whatever it is like it's, um, and, uh, um, you know, so, so when I walk into that room now as, you know, having done this for, for a while, um, you know, I, I know who, who the highest ranking person in the, in the room is and, and is this, does this mean like, okay, I'm trying to picture this. Does this mean that like. Uh, the majority of your eye contact is reserved for that person, or does that mean you're speaking to their interests while um, like, working the room? Well, I'm telling them a story, and you know I'm including the the other two people from the network around them. Or if I'm pitching the studio, it's the same thing. But you know, if you're pitching to the president of the network and the people who work under them, well, yeah, you know, you're telling the president of the network the story. Sure. And the and the other guys, it's like you know, keep up, you know? Um, and you know, sometimes there's like two, two heads of a department or whatever. I mean, it, it, it can get complicated. Do you get nervous? Uh, I get energized. I wouldn't say I get nervous. So you like, you like it. Yeah. You know, I do. I was in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, uh, last week and I, um, you know, the, the publisher had set up, there's a, you know, a huge independent bookstore in Oxford, um, called square books. Uh, and every week they do, there's this radio show, this live radio show, Thacker Mountain Radio, they do out of there. And it's an hour-long show, and they've got, like, three bands and a novelist. And it's really kind of wild. And I didn't really prep or know what to expect walking in. And, and I walked in, and you think, well, it's going to be a Q&A or something. And, and I walked in, and they're like, all right, well, you have 12 minutes, you know, on live radio. Uh, so are you are you okay with that? Like, And, and I was like, no, you know, I guess I could be okay. Like, I've been doing, uh, you know, I mean, my... My uh, bookstore readings is, you know, it's kind of a dog and pony show, which is some talking and some reading and some talking. So I was like, I guess I'll just do a version of that. And then while the other acts were going, I was just kind of like, all right, I'll do this and then I'll do that and then I'll do this. And um, I got a little nervous at that point, but not like dry mouth nervous. Like I, I feel hand, like I'm shaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've done the performance enough that, that, uh, you know. I feel like I can 
get up there and fill 12 minutes and, and be relatively charming and relatively entertaining or at least think I am, you know, so. So, okay, so, okay, and then I don't mean to, to hammer this too hard, but, like, prior to a meeting, uh, do you prep? Yeah. What I have is um, originally I had index cards and then I had my iPhone and now I have my iPad and I'll have a 12 to 15 page pitch document that I've written. Um, like block paragraph or just list form kind of thing? No, block paragraph as yeah. a narrative. Um, I don't memorize it because um, that seems insane to me. But, you know, I know it well enough that I, you know, I just sort of scroll through and, and, and do the performance. And I write the pitch in a very conversational way, um, you know, and and I'm I'm told that I pitch very differently than a lot of other people because I think as a novelist – um, you know, I'm very aware of the power of, you know, of interesting character details, you know, I mean, most people go in and they're like, you know, she's whip smart and, you know, and you're like, oh, it's more interesting to say something like specific about these characters. Uh, and then to have these, you know, little details or funny little stories or an anecdote, um, you know, and, and, you know, I did like, I did a, a parole show pitch recently, and, you know, at some point in the pitch, I was like, you know, and this seems like the time, a good time to talk about second chances, which is what the show is about. And then you start to talk about thematically about that stuff. And, and uh, um, you know, recently, uh, you know, I, I told you the stuff about the segue earlier, right? So uh, this last pitch that I did, this parole pitch, I actually said, you know, when when the small talk is over and they've given you the waters and everyone's like, oh, the weather, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. New Orleans Saints or whatever. <laughs> and, then, and then they kick it to you and there's that moment. You know, I I said, you know, I was thinking in the on the drive over about the segue, like how to get from the small talk to the pitch. Right. And then I was, I was thinking about maybe I would start with um, – by telling you that my house was broken into recently, which it was, and, you know, this guy kicked down the back door and we went home and stole some stuff. And then I was thinking, well, you know, I was thinking about maybe instead saying I was watching TV the other night and Stripes came on. And I was thinking about how that kind of antihero doesn't really exist anymore, like Bill Murray from the 80s or, you know, or Cuckoo's Nest, you know, the, the sane man in an insane world. And then I was thinking maybe I would start with talking about you know, and, and I went through like two or three things that I was that I thought maybe I would segue with, and then as I talked about them, they kind of came together to not be three totally separate things, but to be three elements from the show that then became. Dude, you are a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I think like it's a performance, and you no should make shit. it fun. You know, it's not yeah. just like going in and going, all right. You know, he's a cop who who's never forgotten anything that's ever happened to him. You know, or his sense of smell is incredible, and right. and then all right, now I'm going to laboriously go through the case of the week or whatever. It's yeah. more like and, and entertain these people. And they get energized when you do that. And, and at the very least, I mean, they might not buy it from you, but like after this last pitch, you know, a showrunner that I know stopped me and is like, I heard you killed at AMC the other day. Like it becomes a thing, you know, you're the guy who goes in and, and tells him a good story. And, and, uh, so I don't know. I mean, my, it should be fun. I mean, it, 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 it grinds you down like a tooth, but it's still, you know, but the day that it's not fun anymore, just. You know, just get out. I mean, I'm I, I I will have transitioned to Austin. Like it's that's a it's a nice escape valve, but because it's like I can build a life there where, if the TV thing gets like too annoying, 
I'll just write novels and and you know live hand to mouth like that's I'm well that's like, I, mean, I don't want to build this like lifestyle that I I can only support by you know doing the soul sucking work well yeah that's I mean that brings up a natural question because so many people who write fiction uh, myself included you're thinking God if you could write for TV you can make money. Like, have you set yourself up to the point where you can just write fiction, or does it not work that way? Is that a? I mean, I guess it, it can happen if you had this runaway smash hit television show. But yeah, I mean, I uh, I was doing really well, and then you know, you get married and you start a family, and like you, you just expand. Your needs expand. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, I told you earlier, it's like I have a, a house here in L.A. Uh, that I sold that I'm moving out of like, you know, next week we're moving out of it and I'll just rent a, a little place in LA. Um, uh, just to, when I come to work and you know, if this, if I get a show picked up and it shoots in LA and writes in LA and the family has to come here, we'll just rent a bigger place. We'll create a scalable existence, right. but I won't be putting out this huge overhead every month, you know, to, to look at the Hollywood sign from my, you know, from right. my windows, um, which may be the, biggest asshole thing i've said since i got here but (laughs) but but, uh it was cheap when i bought it um but uh no i do think you know about my escape hatch i mean i think it's important to do and and uh you know i feel like i made a sort of conscious career choices in the tv industry to 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 try to get at least two network shows going um, which in- both increases my profile and also what I get paid so that when I go over to cable, you know, then it's like, um, you know, I'm going in as somebody as opposed to signing that FX deal as a staff writer where, you know, they're not going to pay you anything. And, and, uh, um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I've tried to think as, as, um, practically as possible about this because, um, I'd like to spend the maximum amount of time telling the stories that I want to tell before I get too old to do it, you know? And, um, you know, like and I when said, is that, do you have a sense of that? Uh, I don't, I mean, I feel like there, there is this ageism in Hollywood, but it, it, but it, it's not universal. You know, I feel like it applies if, if you're the guy who's just, you know, on a TV show and you're just a staff writer and you're working your way up, you know, and all you're doing is getting more expensive, um, and, and um, you know, I, I feel like there's there's real ageism there. They reach a certain point where they're like, well, we could just get, like, two of those guys cheaper if there were 20, you know? Right. Um, but if you have the practical skills, you know, I have a guy who I worked with on both of my shows, um, Bob De Laurentiis, who he's a great showrunner, you know, and, and people bring him in. Um, as the guy to, to steer the ship and he'll always have work because he's really good at it and people like him. Um, you know, I feel like in the movie business, like unless you really, uh, become, you know, David Peoples or, you know, one of these, uh, you know, Steve Zalian or, you know, with a real voice and, a, you know, yeah, you'll, people will stop. They'll go, well, he's, a, he, he's, his kids are, you know, older than our audience, you know, than right. our demographic. So we don't want to hire him. So I'm aware of it. I mean, I've never thought of myself as the writer. You know, if you want the next Bond movie, I don't necessarily think you're going to think of me. I do much more character-oriented stuff. Um, But if you want, you know, something that, you know, is is original or character-driven or, or, um, you know, funny, 
and also dramatic. Like I have a voice for better or worse. And I think part of my skill is in recognizing what my voice is and what it isn't, you know, and like not putting myself up to write, to go in and pitch an action movie or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, so when you look forward to, do you have a sense of balance between fiction and uh, writing for the screen? Like, do you have a vision of how you'd like it to go? Like do you see yourself 60 years old, just writing novels with the screenwriting career in, in your rearview mirror? Or do you see yourself doing both? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I know that as specifically, certainly, um, you know, uh, as I said, those first three books, I had reached a point as a midlist fiction author where I wasn't even convinced I'd be able to publish another book, you know, because you have this track record and they look at your sales numbers and they sort of automatically go, well, he'll sell less this time than he sold last time. And so that was a huge concern. But I ended up um, just, um, I ended up switching literary agents just because the agent that, that I had um, was retiring and, and, um, you know, I ended up with a woman named Susan Gollum who represents Tom Rockman and Jonathan Franzen and, and uh, you know, the kind of agent who when they call and say you have to read this, people are going to read it. Um, and I ended up – and I wrote the book that I wrote and the combination of those two things I think um, put me into a competitive – bidding situation like we sent the manuscript out on a friday and by wednesday we had like multiple offers and by friday we'd sold it to to double day which had never happened to me before i mean it's always like uh that your agent says well i'm going to send it to two people and then two to three weeks later you hear well they like it but they need to show it to two other people yeah. you know what i mean and like sure, yeah. six weeks later like maybe they'll make you an offer so this was the opposite of that and and that must uh, have been exciting it was you know and and really uh you know uh rejuvenating as as a novelist and 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 rewarding to think yeah did it did it make you more confident like okay maybe i'm maybe i'm good at this or maybe i can do this and this could be something or? well it's what it is is you know it showed me as a writer like i when you sit down to write a novel, which you have to do before you can sell a novel, you have to write a novel, um, and which I, whatever my character or my illness is, uh, I was compelled to write this book, you know, in the middle of the night, first thing in the morning, you know, while I'm doing all this other TV stuff, I was writing this book because it's a, it's a hugely important part of my identity, I think, to be a novelist. And so to, to come out of that, to come out of like four or five years of doing it, you know, um, when I should have been parenting or husbanding or <laughs> eating, <laughs> eating or whatever, um, you know, um, and then to have such, you know, such an immediate and kind of acclaim and response to it, you know, it's the kind of thing that makes you want to cry. Cause you know, it's like, nobody, you can cry on the air. I've yeah. never had that happen oh, before. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm not, I won't, but, um, um, but, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that's, it's like, you're like, well, I was right. You know, I was right to put that energy into it. And, and so, you know, now as the book is out and I've, you know, I'm traveling around for it and it's been this, I mean, going to London was amazing because it's, you know, I was like every newspaper I was interviewed and they talk about books on TV over there and I was on the BBC, uh, um, and, and all this radio stuff and like, um, and, uh, uh, and then coming back and doing the, the tour here and you go, well, maybe I, I could just do this for a living. Like, this is a really cool thing to, but you know, I mean, it's, I mean, 97% of novelists can't 
really afford maybe more yeah you know to be novelists but i also feel like well exit strategy wise you know i mean at this point having done what i've done you know couldn't i call up uh, ut or you know any of these universities and say hey how about i come and teach for you while i write my novels or whatever you know so i sort of feel like i have these fail safes and these options and it, and it you know it sucks to have to think like that but you should think like that yeah you know you should think about what you know what your options are uh, because you know Hollywood is certainly fickle, and and uh, what I you know what I'm selling looks good now, but who knows five years from now if any, if anyone you know when I when I got my first show picked up, you know Bob De Laurentiis who came on to help me run it, he said, well you got five years now. You bought your you got a show on the air. You bought yourself five years. So you got your career has five years to it. And then when I got the second show, he's like, well that just kind of up re upped you. So now you got you know those two years back that you had before. Um, because, you know, you walk into a room and you're like, well, I ran it. I got a TV show on the air and I ran it. And that has like – that has meaning until you don't do it again for a long enough period of time. And then they're like, well, I guess this guy is not really the thing. So let's move on. And you end up like, you know um, – you know, on selling the, fruit on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah, one of those, uh, yeah, stoplight uh, guys. So. I've always wanted to buy something from one of those guys. It looks good. Yeah, it's a little lacquered. No but it pesticides looks good. at all. Yeah, none. They drive that stuff up. None. Well, um, this has been awesome, man. You're, it's been uh, greatly educational oh, and thanks. fun to hear from you. And uh, I wish you all the best with the book and with the screenwriting stuff. And uh, yeah, just very impressive. Oh, thanks. That's. Uh, that's yeah that, that'll be my headstone <laughs> <laughs> all right man take it easy thanks okay folks there you go that's the program that is noah hawley go get his book it's called the good father it is available now it's out there from double day you can find him on the web at noahhawley.com he's on twitter at noah hawley and he's also on uh facebook so you can find him there thank you to kill Rockstars for all the great music go check out killrockstars.com and thank you once again to the ucla extension writers program that is our sponsor. If you're working on a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of one kind or another and you want some instruction or some structure or some help or you want to meet some other people who are interested in writing, go sign up for a class. You can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the Internet. Either way works, and there's no time like right now to go get it done. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers. Uh, And you can also check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, Okay, uh, closing thoughts, final thoughts, how to wrap it up. I think I need to work on uh, quieting my mind. That's not really news. I need to work on being uh, not quite so hyper-analytical about everything all the time. I need to uh, work on focusing on uh, the present moment and not getting lost in hypotheticals. I need to maintain the Zen fearlessness of a beekeeper, if that makes any sense. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Please remember that Truman Capote's father went to prison for grand larceny, and James Joyce learned Norwegian so that he could read Henrik Ibsen. That's hard to say, but I just said it. I'll be back again soon with another episode, another conversation, another rambling interior monologue. It's just you and me here. Think about it. We are inside of an elevator inside of my brain.